0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Excited to be here again, worshiping with you all, bringing God's word to God's people. Uh, My name is Jeff Kreisel. I serve as the, God, these lights are bright. Good night. Uh, The RUF campus minister at the Air Force Academy. Um, As many of you are aware, When our students graduate, they commission as officers in the Air Force. They become second lieutenants. And and what does that mean? As military officers, our nation expects much from these young leaders. First, they need to be experts at their jobs. As they progress in the ranks, our nation expects them not only to be good at what they do, but to make ethical decisions. And so, at the Air Force Academy, one of my responsibilities is to help our cadets become leaders of character, to become people who will make ethical decisions throughout their careers. And we do this by trying to instill certain virtues into them. The Air Force has their big three, right? Integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. The Army, I also serve as an Army chaplain. The Army has a few more. Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And our hope is that these virtues will become second nature in our cadets, that they would become uh, kind of their default mode, so that when they're presented, when they find themselves in an ethical dilemma, they make a decision that reflects these virtues. But there is more to ethical decision-making than simply understanding certain virtues you may have you may understand the standard but that's not enough you also have to have the right motive right so we want we want them to value certain virtues that's why we call them our core values because we value these virtues but even that isn't enough you can have the right standard you can have the right motive but if your decisions are not directed towards the right goal you are now heading into unethical territory. You have to have the right standard, the right motive, and the right goal. So I wanna introduce you to Japanese Lieutenant Hiro Inada. Do I have a slide? Maybe, no? Oh, there he is. Japanese Lieutenant Hiro Anata. Lieutenant Anata uh, was born into a military family going all the way back to the samurai days. So from day one, he was born to be a soldier. And so when he turned 18, the first thing he did was he enlisted in the Japanese army. One year later, in 1941, Japan went to war with the United States and the Allied forces. He was a very good soldier. He embodied many of the attributes, the virtues that I want our cadets to embody. He was loyal he was fiercely committed to his cause. He was devoted to duty. He was selfless. He was respectful to his commanding officers. He was courageous. In a sense, he was your, your kind of uh, ideal soldier. On September 2nd, 1945, however... The Japanese surrendered to the United States on the USS Missouri, but not for Lieutenant Hiro Hanada. Over the next 30 years, he kept fighting the United States. Um, Well, the United States had now departed, but he kept fighting as if the war was still ongoing. He was determined to win. He was committed to his cause. He was fiercely loyal to Japan. He was fiercely loyal to his emperor, an emperor who had already lost. Now, get this, on October 1945, the United States received word that there was a guerrilla team, this Japanese guerrilla team in the Philippines that was still like wrecking havoc and causing all sorts of trouble, just terrorizing the locals. And so they dropped leaflets all over the island announcing that the war was over, that Japan had surrendered. Well, Lieutenant Inada picked up one of these leaflets and he came to the conclusion that it was fake news, it was just a ploy to get him and his men out of hiding. A couple months later, the commanding general of the Japanese army sent his own leaflets and once again, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Inada determined that it was fake news. Well seven years later, he was all alone. His, his entire team had now left. Seven years later, 1952, the United States reached out to Japanese leaders and they, they, they got in touch with uh, Lieutenant Inada's family and his friends and they got pictures. They got personal letters, and they copied them, and they dropped them all over the island. And once again, Lieutenant Anata thought it was fake news. And so for 30 years, most of his life, he remained loyal, dutiful, selfless, and courageous, all the while fighting for a side that had already lost. A lieutenant and not a story, it may seem unusual, and and it it is unusual, Um, but on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is a story that is all too common. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey knowing full well what the week would bring. When he entered Jerusalem and he heard the crowds chanting and cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, oh, please save us. As he heard that cheer, he knew that that cheer would turn to cries, crucify him, crucify him. As he entered Jerusalem and he hears them crying out, Jesus, you're the king of Israel, you are the son of David. He knew that those cries would turn in just a few short days, and to give us Barabbas. Like, we would rather have Barabbas than you. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he knew what the week would bring. He knew that the cross would be the setting of the decisive battle between him and the seed of the serpent. It was like the Omaha Beach Jesus knew all these things as he rode into Jerusalem, but he also knew something else, and that is this. He knew that he would win. He knew that he would win, and he did win. And so this morning we're going to look at the gospel leaflets that show us very clearly that the decisive battle is over, that the war has been won. So I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be looking at John chapter 12. Verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the reading of God's Word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to see Christ more clearly, that we would believe and have life in his name. Um, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but we pray that we would believe firmly. And it's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so fun fact, um, each of the Gospels introduces Palm Sunday with different stories. Matthew and Mark are pretty similar, but there's a slight uh, difference. Matthew, he focuses, instead of focusing on when Jesus heals the two unnamed blind men when he's traveling from Bethany, to Jerusalem, Matthew focuses instead on Mary Salome, the mother of James and John, and he uses this as a teaching opportunity. Matthew typically wrote in a way to convey the, 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 the teaching nature of Christ, okay? So Matthew introduces us to Mary Siloam. She's the mother of James and John, and she comes up to Jesus, and she has a proposition for him. She essentially says, hey, when you become the king of Israel... How about you make my boys your right-hand man and your left-hand man? Give them a worldly promotion. And Jesus, he answers Mary by turning to James and John, and he says, you can't drink the cup that I'm about to drink. And then he goes, even if you could, your model for leadership is upside down. And then he goes on and says, even the Son of Man did not come to 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 be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark introduces us to blind Bartimaeus. Mark is the only one who uses Bartimaeus' name. Bartimaeus was a blind man, and he sees Jesus traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem, and he cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus sees his faith. He restores Bartimaeus' sight. And I love this little exchange between Jesus and Bartimaeus. Jesus says... Your faith has made you well. Go your way. And then Bartimaeus replies, Your way is now my way. I'm going with you. And then he follows Jesus to Jerusalem. Luke introduces us to Zacchaeus. You all know the story of Zacchaeus. He was a very wealthy chief tax collector. He was despised by the Israelites. Jesus takes notice of Zacchaeus. And he says in front of this large crowd of people, Zacchaeus, I see you. And I want to dine with you. Take me to your home. And all the crowd gasps. Like, how dare Jesus invite this stranger to his table, this sinner. It's as if they, they saw this exchange and thought to themselves, I'm cool if Jesus is the friend of sinners like me, but not the friend of sinners like him. Last but not least, we have John. John leads into Palm Sunday, not with Mary Salome, not with Bartimaeus, not with Zacchaeus. He could have picked probably a slew of other stories. But he chose instead to introduce us to Lazarus. And then he interweaves Lazarus' story throughout Palm Sunday. You all know the story of Lazarus. He was dead. Like dead, dead. Okay? He had been dead for four days, in fact. In other words, he was beginning to smell. Jesus weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus. And then he brings him back to life. Now, why did Jesus bring Lazarus back to life? Well, the text tells us in chapter 11, verse 15, it says, Jesus tells his uh, disciples and the crowds that witnessed this resurrection that he did this sign so that you may believe. That was the objective, that was the goal. So that you may believe. But believe what exactly? Believe that... Lazarus was dead, and now he is alive? Of course. Jesus wants us to believe, he wanted them to believe, that the events surrounding John 11, the the resurrection of Jesus, were historical. They actually happened in time and space with real people. Lazarus was raised from the dead. He wants us to believe that. But there's more to it believe that Jesus is really powerful and that he can do extraordinary things, that he can perform extraordinary miracles like raising somebody from the dead, is that what he wants us to believe? And yes, Jesus wants us to believe that he is powerful, that he has power over death itself. But there's more to it than than that, okay? Remember, in, 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 in John's gospel, he doesn't use the word miracle like the others. He calls the miracle signs because they point to something greater. So Lazarus' death and resurrection points to something greater. He wants us to believe something greater. I'll read John's purpose clause, his purpose statement in John chapter 20. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Lazarus' resurrection was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you may have life in his name. So what does Jesus want us to believe when we see this sign as we head into Palm Sunday? He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life. It's like when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, One must be born again. He's saying, You have to be born again. And that is what you get through faith in Christ. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to show us something very profound. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the, from the grave, John explains to us that what is about to take place is to be understood in light of Lazarus' story. I call it a Lazarus sandwich, all right? So our text begins, verses 9 through 11, with it talking about Lazarus. Verses 12 through 16, we have the triumphal entry. And then we return, verses 17 to 19, to Lazarus. The triumphal entry is sandwiched between two mentions of Lazarus. John clearly wants us to see the connection here between Lazarus' resurrection and Palm Sunday. John wants us to see that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, his mission was not to topple Rome. But death itself. Death surrounds us, does it not? I think the past year has made that abundantly clear. Death has been on the forefront of our minds. There have been 550,000 COVID related deaths. The CDC recently released some alarming statistics about the the age range that I minister to, the 18 to 24 age range. And they they released these statistics. According to the CDC, one in four, it's 25% of those between 18 to 24 years old reported having seriously considered suicide in the last 30 days. That's heartbreaking. If you turn the news on, you see another mass shooting. Atlanta, 11 days ago, eight lives lost. Right up the road, Boulder, just a few days ago, 10 more. Every single day, 250 kids die from cancer. Death surrounds us. Lazarus' story shows us A God who not only weeps over death, but a God who rides in to defeat it. I want you to feel the weight of this. So we're going to rewind just a tad. Okay, we're going to go to John 11. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. He has been put into a tomb. He's been in there for four days. Jesus shows up. And they look into the tomb and they see their dead brother. Now, what thoughts do you think were racing through their heads? If I had to guess, it was probably something like this How long, O Lord? How long? Is this how the story ends? Can anyone beat death? Does death win? Do pandemics win? Do mass shootings win? Do suicidal ideations and suicide attempts win? Does cancer win? Does war win? Does death win? And then in the midst of their despair, Jesus shows up and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man heard the voice of Jesus And he wakes up. All of a sudden, Lazarus could breathe again. All of a sudden, Lazarus could walk and talk again. Lazarus had been reborn. And when he walked out of the tomb, his sisters must have now been thinking, somebody can defeat death. It doesn't win Life wins, grace wins, redemption wins, because Jesus wins. Now this truth will change you. It changed Lazarus. The text shows us what happens to Lazarus just immediately following his resurrection. He was just raised from the dead and then he immediately travels with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem and puts himself in harm's way. Verse 10 tells us that the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. In other words, they weren't just like thinking about putting Lazarus to death. They had made plans. They were going to make it a reality. Lazarus goes to Jerusalem with a death sentence. Now, why would they want to kill Lazarus? Verse 11 tells us, because on account of him, because he was raised from the dead, many of the Jews were going away. What were they going away from? They were going away from the chief priests, and they were turning to Jesus. They were believing in Jesus. And my friends, when you believe in Jesus Christ and you receive new life in his name, when you are reborn, you become... Like Lazarus, a walking and talking gospel tract. People will see the way that you live your life. They will see the hope that you have. And prayerfully, they will ask you about it. Now, some may believe. Others will hate you for it. Just like Lazarus. You see, Lazarus reminds us that a close association with Jesus will get you in trouble. In all four Gospels, Jesus makes this promise to his disciples. He says, you will be hated when you are devoted to me. You will be despised. Paul reiterates this promise in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In our country, many Christians desperately want to believe that following Jesus won't bring them trouble. And so they turn to worldly things to protect them, to keep them secure and safe from the trouble that Jesus promised them would come. They turn to politicians, they turn to legislation to protect them from the trouble that Jesus said will come. It's as if they turn to Jesus and say, I may be hated for my faith in you, but I will not be persecuted. They turn to nationalism for protection from trouble because just like the crowds in John chapter 12, they expect a conquering political king to save them instead of a humble donkey riding crucified king. So I want us to look real quickly at the nationalistic crowd. And I want us to see their unmet expectations. The crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna, as they see Jesus ride into Jerusalem. Now, the word Hosanna is a Hebrew phrase. And it is only found in one Old Testament passage, Psalm 118, verse 25. You all know this passage. This is a very uh, well-known psalm. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna. In other words, save us, please, Lord. Psalm 118 anticipated a humble, lowly king stone that the builders rejected. But that's not the kind of king that the crowds in Israel were expecting. They were anticipating something else. And it's, I, I don't blame them. They were tired of, Russia, of Roman oppression, of Roman occupation. They wanted to overthrow them. They wanted to return Israel to its former glory. And they had heard from these crowds that just came from Bethany and witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, that Jesus has power over death. And if Jesus has power over death itself, certainly he can defeat Rome. And so they start to chant and cheer, Hosanna, Hosanna. But instead of riding in on a, like a, like a steed with this large war horse to declare war on Rome, Jesus rides in on a, on a donkey to declare peace. And this is the Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9 prophecy that was read earlier. Now, I think this was probably quite the blow to the Israelite crowds when they saw Jesus riding in on a donkey instead of a horse. This didn't meet their expectations. But if the stories are true, if Jesus is able to raise people from you know, from the grave, if he has that kind of power, then we're going to overlook this little donkey uh, thing. We can overlook that for now. We'll see what, see what happens this week. Now, what about the palm branches? Where do we find the palm branches? Where did they come from? They're actually not in the Bible. They come from an intertestamental book. They come from 1 Maccabees chapter 13. 1 Maccabees. So, the Maccabean revolt, the Israelites overthrow the Seleucids, they get their temple back so that they can practice their faith in their own temple, in their own way, and when they got the temple back at the rededication ceremony, there's a big parade and they're waving palm branches to celebrate their military victory over the Seleucid empire. You see, in John chapter 12, they expected a national liberator who would lead another military insurrection like Judas Maccabee. I think his, his, his actual name is Judas Mattathias, but they renamed him Judas Maccabee because the name means the hammer. That's what they wanted. They wanted a hammer to come in and overthrow their oppressors. In other words, the palm branches used in John 12, they had become, over the last 150 years, a national symbol. In a sense, the palm branches were like their flag that they would wave at parades. You see, by waving palm branches, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they were communicating their expectation that Jesus was here to save their nation with military might. But Jesus had much more in mind than their single nation. His mission was global. All nations, all tongues, all tribes. And my friends, his mission hasn't changed. I'm a very patriotic person and patriotism is not innately We are commanded by God to be good citizens, to submit to the governing authorities that God has providentially placed over us. But when patriotism and Christianity become entangled, just as as Judaism and and, uh, nationalism have become entangled in John 12, things get twisted. Our expectations get all messed up. We start to expect a Jesus who uses worldly power and political leveraging and military strength to keep us safe. We start to expect a savior who fights fiercely instead of dies humiliatingly. We start to expect a Jesus who is the hammer instead of the hammered one. Listen, I love this country. I've served in two wars for her. But a person who desires to live a godly life, the flag I wear on my shoulder, it can't protect me from the trouble that Jesus promised will come. And if I'm given the choice... I have to choose between the righteous robes of Jesus Christ or a flag, the decision is really easy. I love that V7 displays all of these flags. That is, this is, they are the palm branches because our Savior is a global Savior. All right, let me wrap it up. Okay, on Palm Sunday... The crowds are expecting an insurrectionist king like Judas Maccabee. They want Jesus to fit their Maccabean mold. And with this expectation in mind, they start to chant and cheer, Hosanna, Hosanna. But by Friday, it became clear that Jesus is not meeting their Maccabean expectations. And so their cries changed to, Crucify him, crucify him. And as he hung on a cross, his disciples, like Mary and Martha, as they looked into the tomb, are now wondering, can this be happening? Is he really dying? Is death going to win? And this question is why John interweaves Palm Sunday with Lazarus. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, riding on a humble donkey the beast of burden. His eyes were fixed on a cross where he would bear our burdens. But his eyes were also fixed at a point beyond the cross. It's as if he can look through the cross to something else, and he sees what's coming, and that is his resurrection when his decisive victory over sin, death, and the devil himself would be declared publicly. So after thirty years fighting in a war that was already over, a guy named Norio Suzuki Suzuki, who's an adventurer, and he, he traveled to the Philippines to find Lieutenant Hiro Anata. He goes into the Philippine jungles. And lo and behold, he finds Lieutenant Inada in 1974, and Hiro is still wearing his World War II uniform. And here's what Suzuku t- tells Lieutenant Inada. He says, Inada, the emperor of Japan and the people of Japan are worried about you. It's time to come home. And after hearing this good news, Lieutenant Inada emerged from the jungle, and then he goes before the president of the Philippines because he had committed some atrocious crimes over the past 30 years. And what did the president do? He pardoned Lieutenant Inada, and he sets him free. Listen, as a re- result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the decisive battle has already been won. In the end, Death can't win. And because Jesus bore our sins, when we stand before God and we give an account for our crimes, our God goes a step further than the president of the Philippines. He not only pardons our sins, but he adopts us into his family and calls us his beloved children. My friends, since Jesus has already won, your loyalties change. Your commitment to sinful behaviors and, and patterns, they can be set aside. You can stop trying to save yourself, to prove yourself worthy before a God who has already declared you righteous because of Christ. Christ. You can come out of hiding. Jesus has already won. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for John 12. Um, Thank you that you speak through your word um, to our hearts. We pray that you would move in each of us this morning. We pray that we would go out from here as people who believe that the decisive battle is over, that death has an expiration date, that there is hope for the hopeless, that we have a great inheritance coming our way. We thank you, we praise you. It's through Christ's name, amen.